All right, once again, welcome to Infusion Church. I'm going to read our uh, scripture text this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 19, and then uh, chapter 15, verses 24 through 30. And I think it'll probably be up here on the screen. There you go. So you can follow along with me if you'd like to. Beginning in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Verse 15. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. Verse 17. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Uh, Verses 24 through 30. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he, Saul, said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you use it this morning to speak to our hearts? Would you open our blind eyes and our deaf ears and our hard hearts, Lord, uh, that you would minister to us by your spirit? Please use Matt as an instrument in your hands to magnify the great name of Jesus and to edify this uh, piece of the body of Christ right here in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Tom. Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. And I, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Ortiz. I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't met yet, I would be, um, I would be encouraged if you came up to me afterwards and introduced yourself to me so I could get to know you. We're just stoked that you're here and that you're joining us uh, this morning. Um, I am also stoked that you all got to meet my 
my old school, uh, high school friend, Jim Foster, and his, his wife, Christina. And um, I, I do remember them being in our home before they took off to South Africa and, and just being so encouraged by their commitment to follow God's call on their life, right where they were, but also overseas in South Africa. I mean, they, were gonna, they were willing to go wherever God uh, would, would lead them. And uh, I'm glad you got to meet them so you could see what it could look like in your life, if not overseas, then, then in your neighborhood. I'm personally encouraged by both of you, and I want to reinforce um, the idea, the encouragement of you praying for them regularly, of you possibly supporting them uh, financially. Um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's something worth investing in, and I think would, would bless them and glorify God. So, so please, after the service, meet them if you haven't met them. Uh, stop by their table afterwards. Um, so as we read this scripture, I, I doubt that there was anybody uh, here sitting there following along going, wow, this is the most Christmassy passage I've ever read in the Bible, right? Didn't seem very Christmassy at all, you know, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Well, we expect it to be Christmassy, and, and uh, I'll try to connect the dots for you later. We're in an Advent season, working through an Advent sermon series, what in the world does Advent mean? It's a word that pops up around Christmas time. Well, synonyms would be words like arrival or beginning or dawn. Advent, during Christmas time, Advent is about the anticipation of King Jesus who arrived on that first Christmas. That's why this series is called Advent of the King. And what we're doing is we are looking at the very first king's of God's people. It's King Saul and King David found in the Old Testament. And here's the deal. Jesus, Christ himself, in Luke chapter 24, he caught up to these two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. This was after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. And Jesus teaches these two disciples that the main point of the Old Testament is not to give us moralistic lessons telling us what to do and what not to do, but to point us to Jesus, to point us to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So that's what these stories here about King Saul and King David do. Through both good and bad, these first kings of God's people point us to King Jesus. From the beginning, Back in Genesis 3, after the fall that led to destruction and death and a world filled with brokenness, God makes a Christmas promise to send a king who would deliver us from evil and usher in a new kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth. And that is exactly why at Christmas time we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. He, King Jesus, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. We, last week, saw how Saul became the first king of God's people. 
Israel wanted to be like all of the other nations. And so they demanded a king. And when they demanded a king, what they were also doing was rejecting the almighty, all-loving God who had led them. This was also a rejection of their very identity. They pushed God out. God was no longer central. And then things start to fall apart, beginning with Saul. Now Saul here doesn't get a whole lot of airtime in the, in the scriptures because he's overshadowed by King David, right? He is the second king, gets the spotlight here. And you know what? This is a common pattern in the scriptures, and it conflicts with the culture of, of, the, of the, the ancient Near East. In, in the ancient Near East culture, whomever was first was highlighted as the one who would fulfill hopes and dreams. Even today, we are impressed with what's first, the first round draft pick. We call first dibs, and we say that second place just means you're the first one to lose, right? But then we see God work through the second, not the first. In Genesis, Cain's offering uh, to, to God was rejected because it was offered in arrogant pride and selfishness. He becomes the first murderer, killing Abel, his younger brother, who had a heart for God. King Saul ends up being rejected by God because of arrogant pride and selfishness, and it was replaced with King David, who had a heart after God. The first Adam disobeyed God out of arrogant pride and selfishness, ushering in death and destruction. But God sends us the one known as the second Adam, also known as Jesus, who had a heart after God and obeyed God perfectly. God is constantly turning this cultural hierarchical structure on its head to show us that he works by grace. God is a God of grace. And today we're looking at King Saul and his rejection. And there are two things I want to look at. Why Saul was rejected at king and what that means as king and what that means for us, and, and why we need another king and what that means for us. And so first, why Saul was rejected as king. And I want to start with this. I think all of us have found some scriptures, some passages in the Bible that we cherish because they just comfort us in supernatural ways and fill our hearts with joy and peace and hope even in tough times. But there are other scriptures and passages that are really challenging, right? Difficult for us to accept, uh, accept kind of a sharp pill to swallow. This is one of those challenging scriptures. It starts by saying in verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, God, his regret here is not because God lacked wisdom. It's not because God lacked foresight. But this is speaking in terms that we understand, describing the grief and the sadness of, of God over Saul's reckless disobedience. Man, it was reckless. And Samuel was angry about it too. And he's about to confront Saul. So what in the world happened? What happened, and what's troubling to us, I think, 
is that God called upon Saul as Israel's king to wage war against the Amalekites and to take them out as an act of justice. And we hear that, we read that, and we're kind of struck, stunned. We think, wow, I mean, how in the world do we, with our comfortable little lives in San Diego, even begin to understand that? I get that. And here's the deal. When an imperialistic nation attacks another nation, there is hatred, there is violence, there is evil, there is forced suppression, there is slavery, and it just sweeps through the land. Think Nazis in World War II. They don't stop, they will not stop, so they must be stopped, and evil must be pushed back with justice and peace. In Exodus, we see the Amalekites attack Israel when they're most vulnerable in the desert to completely wipe them out. And from the time of Moses to Saul, multiple times the Amalekites attempted to slaughter all of Israel and to take all they had. The Amalekites here, they, in, the, in that time and in that line, they were guilty of unprecedented, horrific war crimes and atrocities. And so God... Out of mercy and justice says, enough, and calls Saul to stop them. Back then, and like much of our world today, nations waged war for profit and power. But God tells Saul, this is not, this is not how we're going to do it. This is for justice. It is not about imperialism. It is not about profit. It's not about Power. I do not want to have anything to do with that. Unfortunately, Saul doesn't listen. And he begins to act like all of the other kings to advance his own status. And so Samuel goes to Saul to call him out. And when Samuel gets to Saul, Saul greets Samuel and his attitude is kind of cheerful. But maybe he's deflecting. I don't know. His attitude is like, hey, Samuel, how's it going? And in verse 13, Saul said, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, but what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? You know, the, the animals formerly owned by the Amalekites, the ones you were explicitly told not to take, I can hear them right outside, you knucklehead. <laughs> That's in the Greek and the Hebrew. Probably didn't say that. That's just how I hear it. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Commentators say about this passage, his response, that in the original Hebrew, he's using vague language as a way of making excuses, kind of like saying, you know what, I, I didn't plan for that to happen, but some of the guys took them anyway, and it just kind of happened. What are you going to do? And then after that, he uses religion to explain it away. Saul said, the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. In the section we didn't read because of time constraints, Samuel rebukes Saul and says to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul viewed sacrifice simply as a way of getting God's cooperation. Let me tell you something. 
that sermon right there preaches all across America and in other nations. Do this, this, and this to get God's cooperation. And so we jump through the hoops to get God's cooperation. And then when God doesn't cooperate with our agenda, then our faith falls apart and we fall away. And then it's followed up with sermons that you just got to try harder. Recommit your life to Christ, you know, and, and get back at it. And you will either become, be disillusioned to live from day to day, or you'll be destroyed and crushed by that. Paul here is just trying to get God to cooperate with him. And Samuel sees right through that, and he calls Saul out. Saul did not listen to God. He did not obey because he did not believe that God wanted what was best for him and others. You know what Saul's doing with God's word? Saul is kind of cherry-picking God's word instead of listening to God's word. Now, some of you might be exploring Christianity and wondering if trusting God is a uh, if, if, if you can trust God enough or if you want to trust God enough even to obey him to see if that's something that you even want to do. And maybe you've been hearing a little about uh, you know, Christianity and, and what, what's involved with it and it sounds restrictive to you. I totally get that. But at one point I came to realize that everyone, religious or not, trusts and obeys something. Everyone, without exception, trusts and obeys something. And most of the time, it's something or someone who rips you off or lets you down. And we keep going back to it. If you trust in financial security, you will obey the financial security God and be unloving to others to get it. If you put your trust in a successful career, you will obey the, success, the successful career God and be unloving to others to get it. You can put your, your, your trust in, in something good and make it your God. Even success in ministry, which is, you know, what I had a rude awakening years ago. Things were flying high and was wonderful. I made my ministry my God and obeyed that God and was loving, unloving to others to get it. Whatever you trust in, you will obey. That's how it works. So the Bible says, trust in the Lord and trust in the Lord alone. He is the only one who is worthy of your loyalty. He is the only one who won't enslave you. He is the only one who asks you to trust and obey because it is what's best for you and best for those around you. It's incredibly tempting, Christian or not, to say, you know what, I will trust in what feels right for me. So I will obey myself in what feels right. But here's the problem. The problem with that is what feels right always changes. <laughs> and it's different for other people. It's a moving target all over the place. If your commitment, say relationships, if your commitment to boyfriend or girlfriend, husband or wife is based on what feels right at any given time, then your relationship will be unstable at best and toxic at worst because you'll constantly be falling in and out of love. In fact, what feels right will make all of your relationships transactional. And our culture's favorite God 
is individualism. It says, you know what? You decide what's right. Obey yourself. You have the wisdom. You have the knowledge. You have the understanding to make your own call. And don't you let anybody tell you otherwise. But in the same way, what feels right always changes. Your wisdom and your knowledge and your understanding always changes. Our present self looks back at our past self and says, wow, back then I thought I knew what was good, but now I know better, a lot better. This is an easy one to understand. I mean, all you got to do is look at old pictures of yourself. I don't care who you are. There was at least one season in your life where you had weird clothes and weird hair. Right? And your present self says to your past self, what in the world was I thinking? Right? That's true for so many other things, not just the way you dress and the way you do your hair. Guess what? Your future self will say the exact same thing about your present self, who you are today. That should at least humble us. Say, maybe I don't have it all figured out. Maybe I'm not qualified to decide what's right and what's wrong myself. I thank God the scriptures come to us and tell us God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is all wise and perfect and loving and merciful and holy. You can put your trust in, in our God who is unchanging. And you don't have to put your trust in or lean on your, your own understanding because that will rip you off and let you down. And God wants better for you than that. Saul trusted and obeyed his own desires and understanding, which gave him a lust for profit and a lust for power. And this is why he was rejected as the king of Israel. God called Israel to be a light to the nations in order to bless the nations. But Saul's becoming imperialistic, gathering profit and power for himself. See, here's the thing. If... You trust God. If you trust God, there is no better way to demonstrate that trust than to center your life on him and obey his word even when we find it difficult to accept in our own understanding. You got a crossroads there. Are you going to trust yourself in your own understanding? Or are you going to trust God in his, in his word? And it's especially critical when you read something in the scriptures that kind of messes with you a little bit, you're like, I don't know about that part. I'm going to make everybody mad at me, okay? So sit tight. It's tempting to say, to have an attitude that says, okay, so the Bible teaches that sex is for a husband and a wife united in the covenant of marriage. I reject that because I don't like that. It also teaches me 
to love my neighbor without qualification, rich or poor, Republican or Democrat, gay or straight, citizen or not, to be friends with him and even to love and forgive anyone who sins against me. I reject that because I don't like that. And whenever I struggle with the passage, I know it's because there is sin in my heart that tempts me to reject parts of God's word because I think maybe God's not got it all figured out. And it's arrogance and pride. If I only follow and submit to God when he agrees with me, do you know what I'm doing? I am putting my trust in my desires and my limited understanding and that rips me off and lets me down and those around me. And functionally, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to put myself in the place of God. I'm setting myself up as God. That's what's going on there. And this passage shows us how destructive this is. After the victory, verse 12, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, check this out. He set up a monument for himself. Ha, <laughs> ha, the audacity this dude has. He wants the world to know how great he is. Look what I did. Look at my leadership. We are victorious because of me. Verse 17, Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you as king over his people. But that wasn't enough. The problem with Saul is he wanted to be greater in his own eyes and in other people's eyes. And we see that also in his false repentance. In verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of, of, God, of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. I wanted their approval. I wanted them to say I was a great king. I wanted them to be impressed. Verse 26, Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turns to go away, Saul sees the skirt of, of Samuel's robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, this is symbolic right here. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you. It's over. So Paul tries desperate, he tries false repentance again in verse 30. I, I have sinned, yet honor me now. Honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Honor me and then, and then I'll go and obey God and, and bow down to him. He is so focused on saving face that he says, yeah, 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 I, I messed up, but you need to honor me before the people. Saul's identity was wrapped up in being a great leader. And when that was lost, he deceives himself. He does not acknowledge his sin. He tries to shift the blame and he uses religion to make excuses. His repentance here is, is not genuine. He's only repenting to avoid the consequences. You know how damaging that is to his own faith? and to the faith of others who are God's people and to a watching world who don't believe in God at all, when you're just repenting to try to get what you want 
let me tell you something. To one degree or another, we all have similar hearts. We base our identity on things that rip us, off, rip us off and let us down instead of God and his grace. We want to be great in our own eyes and the eyes of others. Whether we want to be a great leader, be seen as a great leader, or a humble servant. Sometimes it may look different from person to person. But often the motive is the same. We're trying to manufacture our own name and our own self-image, our own identity. When that's threatened, we can't handle it. We make excuses. We blame others. We may even throw in some religious jargon in there, and we're only sorry for the consequences. We deceive ourselves. I've heard someone say this, and I thought it was good. Self-deception is not the worst thing we do, but it's behind the worst thing we do. Self-deception is not the worst thing we do, but it's behind the worst thing we do. You may end up finding yourself doing something you never dreamed you would thought you would you never dreamed of doing, but what was behind that was self-deception that drove to this nightmare. That's true of anybody. Later, when David defeats Goliath, the people praise David, saying, Yeah, Saul's a pretty cool king, but David, man, he is even better. And when Saul heard this, he became murderous and vengeful. And as a result, he lost his family. He lost his kingdom. He lost his authority. He lost everything. So, that's just my first point. Don't worry. The second one isn't as long, and there's only two. It's a little lopsided here. It brings us to why we need another king. We learn from the failings of all the kings in the Old Testament that there is no one, including ourselves, who can address the deep and great longing in our hearts and our, our lives. No one who can offer us a hope to be realized. No one can do that except for one and only one. There is only one who can bring you encouragement when you are discouraged. There is only one who can strengthen you when you'll feel weak. There is only one who can offer you a very real hope when you feel hopeless. There is only one who is worthy of your trust and your loyalty and your obedience. God gave us a Christmas promise and he always makes good on his promises. And the promise is God the Son will come to you. He is the forever king that you need. He is the forever king that you have been waiting for, that you've been longing for. He is the one to whom Saul and David point. And the New Testament reveals to us that Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We don't use that language a whole lot. We vote people in and vote people out. Not Jesus. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who loves you more than you can ever imagine. And this King of kings and Lord of lords was great in the eyes of God, but he became small. And out of unending love for you, he went to the cross to atone for your sin, to make you great, 
even in the eyes of God because God sees Jesus when you are clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And when you put your hope and you put your faith and you put your trust in Jesus alone, your identity then is formed and shaped by God's everlasting and unconditional love. This is the identity that frees you from self-deception and self-destruction. This is about God's grace. And we see God's grace not just in the New Testament, but from cover to cover. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, God tells his people why he chose them and saved them. Look what it says. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God is saying, do you know why I love you? Do you know why I saved you? Not because you were impressive, not because you were great. I loved you because I loved you. That's God. So often we love people because what they do for us, it's conditional, right? I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you're successful. But what if you're no longer beautiful and no longer successful? It is amazing when somebody loves you just because. I know that Shannon loves me and not because I am beautiful. That's just just the way it is. Oh, James, James loves me because I'm beautiful, which is why we get along so well. Here's the thing. If your self-image and your relationship with God and with others and even with yourself is wrapped up in being good enough or beautiful enough or successful enough or being a great leader or even being a good rule keeper or biblical principle keeper, your identity and all your relationships will feel like they are just one set, one set back away of breaking and falling apart. You cannot afford to have your identity wrapped up in that. God wants to save you from that. When God says to you, I love you because I love you, his love becomes the basis for your identity. And this sets you free from having to fight and preserve and protect anything because you're not insecure anymore. We spend so much of our lives insecure or arrogant until things fall apart and we get insecure. Christian counselor and author David Pallison teaches about different ways we construct our own identity, and he writes this. What are the ways that people get their identity wrong? 
Perhaps you construct a, a self by the roles and accomplishments listed on your resume. You might identify yourself by your lineage or your ethnicity, by your job history or the schools you attend, by your marital status or parental role. Perhaps you define who you are by your politics or objects of your sexual longings. Your sense of self might be based on money or your lack thereof on achievements or failures, on the approval of others or their rejection on your self-esteem or your self-hatred, even your Christian identity might anchor in something that is not God, like Bible knowledge, giftedness, or the church denomination to which you belong. Here's the deal. If we anchor our identity in anything other than God, it will rip you off or let you down. The story of Saul teaches that, but it also teaches us that there is a way to be healed and spared from what happened to Saul, and it comes from experiencing the grace of God and his love for you. His story points to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And though we were small, weak, and we rejected God, He made us great and accepted when the King of kings and the Lord of lords went to the cross and he became small, weak, and rejected by God. He did that in our place. We need a king who is born to wear a crown of thorns. He is the fulfillment of the Christmas promise Saul didn't understand that. My question is, do you? Where do you get your identity? What do you look to to be okay, to feel great in your eyes and the eyes of others? God calls you and me to fix our eyes on King Jesus, who was born as a weak baby, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, paid for our sins, and rose again to give us new life, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we are called to fix our eyes on King Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And when we do, then we will begin to trust and obey this God of grace, more and more and more because King Jesus is the king worthy of our loyalty and our obedience. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?